It looked like a very, very nice business that was ultimately going to dovetail into Google 10 years ago. And each year lost a little bit of it. And while it brought the tech to the masses, it's it's now facing intense competition from Chinese manufacturers. Lenders are being forced to reprice loans or taking big losses. A lot of this is concentrated in large offices in New York and San Francisco, which are trading hands well below what she paid for maybe five, six, seven to 10 years ago. But uh, there's about 1.5 trillion in commercial mortgage debt due by the end of 2025. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike and joining me in today's episode we have My Wall Street's Chief Investor Emmett Savage. To celebrate beating the market for 10 years we have just launched two new products on My Wall Street, Invest and Invest Plus. Members will receive a weekly stock pitch straight to their inbox, our 10 picks to beat the market for the next 10 years and much, much more. Just head over to mywallstreet.com slash invest to find out. Today's podcast brought to you by Vodafone Business. Now, if you're like us here in My Wall Street, you know that running a business is difficult. There are countless things to think about, and many often simply get ignored or completely forgotten about. That's where Vodafone Business can help. They've crafted a suite of tools and supports to boost your business's operations, and the best part is it's free for everyone. From cybersecurity to harnessing the power of AI, building a website and improving how your teams work remotely, Vodafone Business will help you address the often overlooked but crucial elements for your business's success. To get started today, check out their one-to-one vHub digital support and advice service. You'll find everything you need right there. Find the link in our show notes or simply Google Vodafone vHub for more details. Now let's get into today's episode. Emmett, how are we doing? Um, excuse my background you? to you and to, to anyone watching on YouTube. I'm recording in the bathroom at the minute because there's construction outside my window. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you're going to admit that because we uh, just before we went live on air, uh, suddenly every piece of heavy machinery in what city are you in, Mike? In Biritz, uh, every piece of heavy plant fired up outside his window, and and he said, "I'm going into the sound studio," which turned out to be the bathroom. So uh, live from a bathroom in Biritz, Michael Mahoney on microphone, soundproofed. Yeah, I look like him in one of those hostage videos. Which you look. We're going to get on with this. Um, go on, go on. Here we go. Live from a Jackson Barrett. Yeah. So uh, to celebrate that, no, not to celebrate that, but uh, we have a big episode coming up next week, Emmett. 200 episodes. Do you believe that? Yeah, honestly, I believe it. But I tell you one thing, I've never listened to an episode of a podcast that my voice has appeared in which would explain to our listeners why there's no improvement i was about to say the, lack, the of, best actors, lack of quality control <laughs> i think the best actors study their performance when they when they've taken every single shot and they look at every little furrow of their brow and every intonation in their voice and i think that is the correct way to improve but you know what all the way i improved over the years if sorry and the audience laughs the way i try to improve over the years is to just read a little bit more about what I'm about to talk about in advance. There you go. Yeah, uh, well, look, <laughs> the best ability is availability, Emmett. Anyone ever tell you that? Uh, cheers, Mike. Uh, shucks, you're the best. Um, so make sure to tune in next week, lads. We're celebrating our 200th episode with a special offer. We won't uh, give away too much now because we're not sure exactly what it is yet, but I know it's going to be good. 
<laughs> the bathroom in Biarritz ba- speaks the, the truth. The bathroom in Biarritz speaks the truth. We've got a week to think about it, so it's going to be special. It is going to be very special. We really have to. 200 episodes, that's something. Let's let's talk about that next week, but it really is something. We better talk about something very spectacular. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so let's get into today's show. So, And you came across an interesting article from the Wall Street Journal. It said, can IKEA save the mall? The furniture giant is buying up locations uh, across America and says it can rejuvenate them with co-working spaces and Nordic food. I don't know. I don't know if Nordic food is really yeah. the the teaser that everyone wants, but yeah. Well, actually, Nordic food is really nice if you're you know in the middle of Stockholm and you're a tourist. But there you have it. I, I tell you, I thought it was a really really fascinating story, which is why I. I, I pinged you a message yesterday saying let's talk about that and and it, it specifically the article specifically said that the Inca group which is the operator of most of the world's Ikea stores has assembled its own mall empire in recent years from China to Europe to the United States and it says that it wants to buy more locations and and as you said aims to diversify beyond retail and that's really interesting because uh, what we're looking at is a quintessentially retail brand looking over the garden fences that were into other lines of expansion and the story has layers and i just thought it'd be a very interesting conversation uh, between us but before i dive into it as is my custom i thought a two-minute history of ikea yeah. would also make for some interesting for sure, I think listening. It, actually, it wasn't long ago we talked about private companies we'd like to own and I think IKEA came up a few times. So it is, it's a really interesting business and a really interesting story. So go on, fire away there. It is. And in fact, just on that note, I mean, it, it not only is it private, but all its shares are held in a charitable trust by the founder, uh, Ingvar Kampred. Now, I don't know uh, the intent of that charitable trust. Is it a, some kind of tax vehicle or is it, in fact, intended to deliver charitable purposes to society but i wouldn't be surprised if it's the latter when you hear a little bit about uh, about the business and the man himself so this guy ingvar kampred founded ikea in 1943 when he was just 17 years old and he was selling simple goods like pens and wallets and and uh, i should say small goods products that you could carry a load of it in the basket in the basket of your bike um and he was basically uh from a small town called smallland <laughs> in sweden which is a really heavy forested stony soil kind of place and and in their own words off the website it says hardship bred a tough resourceful people who are expert at making the most of a little qualities that have been at the heart have their qualities that have always been at the heart of ikea yeah, i wasn't i back, wasn't expecting yeah. a metropolis when i heard small land there now <laughs> now you, hey have you ever watched any scandy dramas on on television yeah yeah they're they're very very hard very dark and dour and poorly lit yeah they're dark and down poorly lit, but usually brilliantly written and delivered, but not that that's anything to do with Ikea, but I guess the point is you cannot infer anything from an Anglo-Saxon Romantic language into a Nordic language. There's not a single word that you go, yeah, yeah, I recognize that one, apart from hey. Yeah, apart from hey, which is hi, but in fact, funny I should say that because I'm going to get onto that in a few minutes. Anyway, way back when in, in, in the mid-1940s to reward him for doing well in school, Ingvar's dad gave him a small sum of money, which he used to set up a company that in 1948 started selling furniture and the Swedish icon was born. And IKEA, by the way, is named after the initials of the founder, which is 
Ingvar Kamprad, I-K, and then Elmtard, which is the farm where he grew up, and then Angiard, which is a nearby village, I-K-E-A. So it was literally just the amalgamation of letters. What, what do you call that? Is it a palinome or acronym? Of course, it's an acronym. So, that's a, so everyone knows of its desire to offer products with a low price and good quality, and that's always been their thing. But in addition to that, there's three other dimensions that IKEA considers when it considers when it's developing a new product, which is form, function, and sustainability. And when all these five dimensions, as they call them, are in balance, they consider it to be a design that is democratic. And this concept of democratic design was launched at the Milan Furniture Fair in 1995 and ever since has been the tool they use when developing and evaluating products, which makes sense. And I think anyone who's shopped in IKEA, which is most people, realizes that they are effectively the the characteristics, low price, good quality, form, function, and sustainability. Anyways, I'll also mention that they say on their website, and I think there's anyone who's been to Ikea in Ireland will, will probably recognize this, and they quote, they say, well-fed customers are happy customers. And the idea comes from something that Ingvar observed, which is people left the store at lunchtime to eat in one of the restaurants or streets uh, in Almholt in Sweden across the road, and it interrupted the buying process. So he realized that hungry customers buy less, or as they say, on their website and apparently what they say in the business it's tough to do business on an empty stomach and that's ikea and i think a lot of people recognize that as the ikea they know but to your question the company's blueprint is now to anchor its uh, its malls with an ikea store and to seek to pull in more would-be shoppers with additions uh, that basically make it look like WeWork and a WeWork styled uh, co-working space and and Nordic themed food halls and children's play areas that are inspired by you know spaces outside of a typical mall, a bit like people's need to eat, to, to eat uh, but in a slightly different direction. You know, people have a need to work, people have a need to make sure their children are safe and entertained when they're off doing the shopping. Um, and then <clears throat> there's the background or the backdrop that malls have been in decline for years as customers have shifted towards local and outdoor and markets and, and buying online and foot traffic to US malls, I think was down 4% on average in 2023 from the year before, and is about 12% lower from 2019. It's very topical at the minute as well. Just yesterday, Macy's announced that they were shutting down a lot of, uh, a lot of their stores, including the big one in San Francisco on Union Square. Yeah, so it's oh really oh dear yeah, so it's kind of a big a big statement we'll say for in person retail, especially in the US. Yeah, I met Anne Marie yesterday for lunch, and we ended up in a big conversation about this very topic, just coincidentally about how uh, just the decline of in person shopping versus online shopping, and she told me a story about a friend of hers who buys a whole ton of clothing uh, to try on at home, and then returns the items that. Uh, don't, don't, doesn't suit and 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 we she and I were in fierce agreement that that's a horrible carbon footprint, but it it show it exhibits I guess consumer behavior that has come at the cost of of old world shopping malls and and Anne Marie and I were just chatting about how uh, like going to a mall or a shopping center as we'd say in Ireland to buy a piece of clothing that you have to try on it's just horrible. <laughs> well, she and I said we don't like it. I hate it. Oh, it's such a chore. It's like uh, putting your head outside the um, uh, 
the curtain going, could you get these in a size bigger? It's just so embarrassing. Yeah. Anyway, uh, anyway, Ikea's Inca, uh, which is their business, as I mentioned, opened its first mall or meeting places, the company calls them, in 1973. So they're not new to this, and it was in Sundsvall in Sweden, um, together with an Ikea store. And in more recent years, they've expanded into the real estate business, opening up a string of malls. And it says that it's, act- it's said that it's actively looking to buy and develop more locations in the US. And it, it, even, for example, recently it bought a, a mall in Brighton in, in the UK, and, um, and it bought it in November of last year for... 145 million pounds which is about 184 million dollars um and it's already worth more and and brands operating in the mall include apple and zara so this isn't just you're going to ikea this is going to a giant giant retail uh place that has the biggest and best brands if you like of the world and 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 the real estate analysts who looked at the brighton uh, example said that it's now worth about 250 mm. million quid. They only paid 145 million quid a few months ago. So clearly, IKEA are breathe, breathing life into real estate that heretofore was in decline. So I suppose, I suppose they're seeing it's almost like an activist investor in a way. They come in, they buy it, but then they also improve it immediately with their presence. That's a very good point, and I wonder if the if the IKEA brand is as well bedded down in in you know, well, it's for, it's extremely well bedded down in, let's say, the West, but in the East, I wonder, because they're opening malls in the Chinese cities of Shanghai and Xi'an this year. They're opening a store in India in 2025. So, I mean, truly is a global brand. I just wonder, I think with high level of safety, you could stop 10 people in Ireland or America, or America and ask them, have they heard of IKEA and get a perfect 10 out of 10? But I wonder if that's the case over uh, as we move further East. And, and But whether it is or it isn't, they're doing it and they know the formula they've been at it for what nigh on 51 years if the first one they did was on 73 but but here's where i think it gets particularly interesting like this and th- we open up our conversation they've they've a new co-working brand called hey h-e-j the only word you recognize in the swedish scandals scandi dramas um h-e-j apostrophe just to be clear so when you see it folks you know oh that's ikea um and it's the hay workshop is is bringing traffic into the malls and and they opened their third hay um uh, workshop in downtown san francisco so quite interesting macy's is shutting its i presume flagship store on union square while uh, ikea is opening a co-working space under the Hay brand with a capacity for 500 workers. It costs uh, $399 a month. Um, it, the place is obviously fully loaded with IKEA furniture and sofas and relaxation areas. And it all sounds very familiar. And on this podcast, in episode, mm, I'm going to say 85, podcast, a potluck guest, we, we spoke about WeWork and, and, and their formula. But when you really think about IKEA's capabilities, its resources, its assets, its cost, its, its laser focus on cost. And then what we said about breathing new life into areas that uh, until that point were in decline, it really sounds like it could be the WeWork that actually worked. <laughs> and, and then there's, yeah. It's like, it's true, isn't it? Like, I mean, I even like the idea of that. I'm not saying I'm a lover of IKEA furniture. I'm probably like most people, I'm a, a liker of IKEA furniture. It's grand, you know, it's fine. It will do the trick until you basically decide I'm going to give this place an upgrade. Um, but uh, then there's the food. Yeah, we spoke about the food and, and this San Francisco mall. 
will be the first to host Sol. Uh, it's called Sola Hall, which is their new food hall concept. Uh, it's opening up uh, in a matter of weeks, really, and it's full of Nordic cuisine, uh, which in this case is going to be 80% plant-based and only use local suppliers, or sorry, use local suppliers, not only use local suppliers, which is a really nice customer promise. Uh, and I'm not a plant-based food guy, or at least I'm not all in on it. I, I, I really do like Beyond Meats products and a few of the other meat substitute products, but I'm not, I haven't made the full switch. Uh, but that said, the IKEA meatballs have always given me the heebie-jeebies. Have you ever, have you Never ever tried had them? them? But they look kind of creepy. Um, yeah. I don't they, know. They look wrong. The, 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 uh, I'm not painting <laughs> not, Nordic not food. Reassuring it. I'm not painting Nordic food in one brush here either, but like they do a lot of pickled fish and stuff as well. <laughs> I wouldn't be I wouldn't be basing my decision to move my company into co-working space based on the fact that they have Swedish food. <laughs> Plant-based Swedish IKEA meatballs. But the um yeah, I always wondered what what happened, you know, where you can buy a plate of meatballs for like, I don't even remember what it was. It was like three euro. Yeah. It was just worrying. When I was in college, um, uh, who was it? Stella Artois, you know, they did a big, huge, big pivot where they, they got a bunch of uh, MBAers to look at why their, their beer wasn't selling. And, and it was because it was too cheap. And I think they changed nothing except they tripled the price and changed strapline to reassuringly expensive. And then suddenly... Uh, the students moved from Stella Artois to Munchen or Splatten or something like that, which was like 50 pence a can. But um, I think IKEA need to have a look at their meatballs. <laughs> I'm not going to buy a meatball that's three euro, but I might buy a meatball, a plate of meatballs that's eight euro. Oh, I think I that's pretty sure. Covered in jam. Yeah, lenders are being forced to reprice loans and taking big losses. A lot of this is concentrated in large offices in New York and San Francisco, which are trading hands well below what she paid for maybe five um five six seven to ten years ago but uh there's about 1.5 trillion dollars in commercial mortgage debt due by the end of 2025 now this is going to come up where financing is now more expensive property values have dipped i think a lot of this is because of remote work uh, so it's making a bit of a perfect storm and then there's a higher increase of risk of default essentially so what's happening in corporate real estate is quite scary but then there's initiatives like this of repurposing existing properties and and obviously seeing deals. And IKEA have seen opportunities here where it's basically going cheap. Probably what happened in Brighton where they saw something going for 145 million. They're like, we can do a bit with this and in immediately increase the value of it because nothing's happening with it. Um, so mm -hmm. it, it it's interesting. I, I think we might see more and more of this repurposing. Uh, of of these large corporate spaces and skyscrapers and, and the shopping malls and all the rest. So, yeah, no, it's a good initiative to see and it's probably necessary because yeah. it could avoid a bigger problem as well. Um, so, yeah, no, it is. Nobody wants to live in an area or, or uh, nobody wants to see a place go into decline. It just goes against human nature. You want to see vibrancy. You want the places you have to work to have this kind of lifeblood of people. It's 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 funny because I was talking to my family last night, for example, about where we might go this coming summer. And and the argument for hotels versus Airbnb was in a hotel there's a vibrancy and there's a a buzz, you know? Whereas you go to an Airbnb and it's it's quiet. Well it's it's the family and, and they both have a characteristic. But when you bring that to the bigger picture and just think the human humans need to be around humans and, and I think it's great. Like when 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 IKEA bought 
uh, a mall in uh, London last year. Traffic doubled from the year before. And when they bought the Hammersmith Mall, um, about a quarter of its units were vacant and now it's fully let out and a makeover uh, has revamped community spaces. They've added food options. Uh, they've opened the door to non-retail occupants They have uh, that have regular visitors. There's a gym. So when you kind of see a, a master plan come in, and in America, I think is a great place where master plan communities are designed with a with a greenfield opportunity, for example, for senior citizens, as we are going to design this from the from the field up, and I think IKEA are taking that kind of approach. I really admire it. I like it. I think uh, people will be attracted into it. And the points you've made about uh, retail and commercial are very valid. I think everybody has seen it since around the year twenty twenty. Um, if you'd asked me in twenty nineteen, what's the singularly safest investment? that's not cha- traded on a, on a stock exchange, I would have said an office block in the middle of Dublin city. That's, that would have been my answer. Uh, and we've all seen how that's played out. And I think that that very dynamic has, has grabbed the whole world. And now I think we're looking at innovative ways to reinvigorate it. And I say hats off to Ikea. It's a company I really do admire. Um, I wouldn't go there all that often. It's been years, but uh, it, a trip to Ikea is always one that people say, ah, oh, yeah, I'll enjoy that. Let's go. All right. Um, we got a few topics to discuss. So we'll get into a bit of big deal or no deal and kick, take them off. Uh, so this is an old one now, but it's a company you know well. You've been an investor. I think it might have been one of the original stocks. Is that right? Uh, it was not only yeah. Well, you better you better sorry, tell sorry, people sorry, what I it is. Having a conversation before I've introduced it. <laughs> and so Amazon has abandoned its uh, plans to acquire the Roomba maker iRobot. It's an EU opposes deal. It was about a one point four billion dollar acquisition. Um, so. Amazon are going to pay a breakup fee of $94 million to iRobot, uh, and iRobot is going to axe uh, 30% of its workforce immediately, as well as the chief executive leaving. So a lot going on there. Well, it's a big deal, plain and simple, uh, Mike. This is a big deal for iRobot. And you're right, it was one of the first stocks that we put into the Invest app. And it was one of the first stocks I invested for Horizon. And at that time, they had a visionary founder, CEO, Colin Angle. He had effectively was the pioneer of of, of the Roomba and floor cleaning robots. And they had not only had the hardware, which is easy to copy from China, but they had a software lead and they had a strategic partnership with Google and they uh, were taking a map of everybody's home, which in the consent on the way in, you basically said yes. And it looked like a very, very nice business that was ultimately going to dovetail into Google. Then along came Amazon, to my own surprise, and said, we'll take that. And they went about, they announced an intended acquisition. And um, and as you've just said, it fell through. And iRobot was the dominant force in the in in the robot vacuum market way back when 10 years ago and each year lost a little bit of it and um and it, it, while it brought the tech to the masses it's it's now facing intense competition from chinese manufacturers uh, offering like really feature-rich products at lower prices and a nice little app that does frankly everything that irobot used to do and can do and and despite being an innovation leader, iRobot, has really fallen behind now in a lot of areas, like adopting LiDAR technology and integrated mapping functionality and all that kind of stuff. So uh, these are strategic missteps, which if you completely ignore 
the fact that Amazon's planned acquisition has been uh, canned and is uh, basically over, you know, there's a financial strain and it's forced iRobot to make the, the drastic cuts that you've just called out, huge staff reductions. I think about 350 people are being given their cards, as they used to say, and their R&D budgets have decreased. They're abandoning entire product lines. I'm, I'm sure on this podcast over the years, I spoke about iRobot's um, uh, lawnmower. I can't remember what name they gave it. It still isn't available. Coincidentally, I only bought a new iRobot from iRobot as opposed to one of the copycats about a week ago and I'm waiting its delivery. Uh, so I'm still loyal to the brand. But um, the fact that Colin Angle, founding CEO, has walked out the door and the chief legal officer, a guy called Glenn Weinstein, has stepped in um, as the interim CEO is just abysmal. And that's not in any way a slight on Glenn Weinstein. Uh, you know, Angle was a visionary. And as critical and as valuable as a chief legal counsel is, they tend not to be a visionary. So it, it, frankly, it's a hot mess. It's an unfortunate mess. I'm very sorry to see it because I thought, like even the name iRobot is dead cool. You know, like it's cool. It's, it's Isaac Asimov's book. It's uh, it's in keeping with the the i naming convention that goes with a lot of things from iBuying to iPhone. And um, it seems to be now very much uh, a business that is just going to go into drastic decline. I don't think that, I don't think it's going to die. Of course, it's going to survive, but it really does need an injection of R and D, capital, vision, energy, uh, and I think it's a real pity. So it's a very big deal, and I think it's uh, it's it's a shame. Yeah, at first glance, you're looking at Microsoft investing in OpenAI the way OpenAI the way it has, or buying Activision Blizzard, and you're like, how can a tiny 1.4 billion hoover acquisition get blocked but then when you think about what irobot actually does and the way it maps its users homes and then you're like where are you giving that information to amazon which has so much information already on its customers and the 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 retail landscape and then also the smart home stuff and the ring doorbells and all the rest and it kind of you do see the sense in it but uh, yeah, it is. It's a disaster for disaster for iRobot for sure. Right. Let's turn the tables around, Mike. And I have something far more current for you. And it's that Tesla's nemesis and rival BYD has launched an electric supercar that they intend to go head to head with Ferrari. I laugh, but look, sure, there's no point in laughing. It's the real deal. It's a two hundred and thirty-five thousand dollar car. Have you looked at it? And is it a deal or a big deal or no big deal? Yeah, uh, not not really a big deal for me at first glance. Um, this is quite topical because I was just off with Derek Riley last month. Uh, he's the EV expert in Ireland, who's big big fan of BYD. Um, I was also pitching Ferrari, Ferrari last week or the week before. Um, also doing a little more work uh, for our Invest Plus members. So we'll see that soon. So there is there's a lot of ways we could go with this. I think I think it actually the fact that Ferrari is mentioned as much as BYD in this article showcases Ferrari's brand equity. I think. Um, uh, so there, there there's loads of supercars. None of them are Ferrari. I'm going to put this in the in the same bracket. But um, but but but, but no, I, I, this story isn't really about Ferrari. Um, I think it's just thrown in there. I think it's about BYD. So let's talk BYD and the cars. The car is called the U9. It's actually going to be marketed under its luxury brand called Yang Wang. Um, 
Look, if you're in my head that's obsessed with performance, maybe the Ferrari comparisons are fair. It can reach a top speed of 309 kilometers an hour and gets to 100 kilometers an hour in 2.3 seconds, which is comparable to Ferrari models. But for people who are going spending 250 grand on a sports car, I, I think they're going to lean towards a big red Ferrari over a U9 Yangwang, unless they uh, already have quite a selection. You're dead right. Yeah. When you think about the cult of, of luxury products, like you wouldn't value a 5,000 euro Cartier watch if you knew they had a $100 watch at the other end of the counter. Yeah. And that's the thing. Ferrari, its starting price, I don't even know what it is. It's probably 200 grand. So like you don't join that club unless you basically are, are six foot seven, your height when you're standing on your wallet. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, in, in general, it does raise some interesting questions around, and I, I broached these as well in the kind of research I've been doing with Ferrari, whether it's going to be able to recreate the performance in the je ne sais quoi and everything else that goes into a Ferrari when they inevitably bring out their electric versions. And that's one that's yet to be answered. So obviously, it's a flex for BYD to be able to say, yeah, we're able to produce this kind of performance from an electric battery and all the rest. Um, it, 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 I, does it change the investment thesis for BYD? I don't think so. But I think the 3 million cars the company sold in 2023 is the investment thesis. And it's bringing in, you're going to notice a lot more ads in Ireland around BYD. It's a very nascent European expansion. It looks like it's set to kick off it's already a beast in china i i, I don't know what will happen in america um i would be surprised because the automotive industry in america is kind of that like core you know economic pillar i suppose that a lot of america was based on especially middle america uh i i, I don't see them letting a chinese manufacturer kind of have full access but you know, who knows? There's also a much slower pickup on electric vehicles in America than the rest of the world. So, uh, so yeah, we'll see. But um, yeah, it's, it's it's cool that the car goes fast. But if you're interested in BYD, this isn't why you'd invest. It, it, it's it's fine. Um, but yeah, uh, and and it doesn't have a whole lot to do with Ferrari, bar the fact that you asked the question: Can Ferrari do what it does in an electric version? Exactly. It's funny, yesterday when I went down to see uh, Anne-Marie, we I found myself admiring a BYD, which was the first one drove past. I thought the style was nice, it was lovely and shiny, clearly brand new. And and I think that's the the way a brand creeps into your consciousness. I think there's a rule of thumb that you need to see a brand or experience a brand seven times before it's stuck in your head. And I think I've probably hit seven at this stage. Yeah. Um, but you're right. It, I don't think it can stand for luxury. It's impossible for a brand to stand for luxury if it also stands for the every person car. And uh, that's why I totally agree with yeah. Yeah. It's not a big deal, certainly not for Ferrari. Um, but just oh, yeah. a quick reminder, folks, from Vodafone Business Sponsors and Stock Club, check out their free one-to-one digital support and advice service today to discuss a range of topics from social media tips, cybersecurity, building a website for your business. Search Vodafone B-Hub or click on the link in the show notes. Right, Emmett, after I rudely interrupted you. No, sorry, I was just too excited. Um, Mike, while you're in the jacks there, um, we have an email from a listener, uh, Stephen Lynch, a longtime friend and subscriber from my Wall Street, uh, who's here in Ireland. And he highlighted a stock that caught his eye that we thought we'd dive into for a few moments. And it's a 
Well, I thought you might because I haven't looked at it in any great depth at all, but it's a $3 billion New York Stock Exchange listed company called Adiant. And they are the global leader in making car seats of all things. And uh, they have a whole load of metrics that Stephen pointed out look really good. Their price to earnings growth, their peg ratio, less than 1.2. It's forward price to earnings ratio is under 15. Its share price is 60% off its high but it's done $15 billion in sales in 2023 across 29 countries. So we have a $3 billion business that's profitable that did $15 billion in sales in 2023. Talk to me. Yeah. So what Stephen did, and this should be, I think, the template for any other listener questions, is he did most of the research for us. So now I can just repeat what he said and sound smart. <laughs> so. As you said, they're the market leader in car seats and interiors like that. They're decent valuation, um, sitting way off all-time highs, growing earnings, nice returns on capital, decent cash flow, spending a lot on CapEx, which depends on management. I haven't looked into them enough to really know, but it doesn't have to be a bad thing, doesn't have to be a good thing. Uh, most importantly, based in Ireland, although I don't think we can claim them. I think they're about as Irish as Facebook is Irish, which depending on who you ask, if you ask the taskman, yeah, if you ask the task man, it's uh, very Irish anyways, but that's that's another conversation. But uh, when you look at companies, you always kind of compare them to something you've researched before, you know. So um, there was an old My Wall Street stock called Gentex. Do you remember them? Yes, very well. Yeah. Love that business. <clears throat> so they made mirrors and sensor technology and that kind of stuff. Uh, and a very important small part of the wider automotive supply chain. There's nothing sexy about it, but a very successful stock that's been going since the 80s, I believe. Um, so if you own that long term, you'd be doing very well. Adiant uh, hasn't seen that same historic success. Uh, it's only been public for the last eight or nine years, but holds that similar significance of this very important small cog in a much bigger machine. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, so recently it took a big hit there with the United Auto Workers strike, and in general, if you're looking at a stock like this, or any kind of supplier stock as part of this wider supply chain, um, their growth is going to basically mirror the industry. So, you know, if you look at uh, the amount of cars sold and the growth rate compared to uh, Adiant's revenue growth rate, it's almost like for like. Uh, so it's not going to be up and to the right in terms of revenue. It's going to be choppier. It's not a growth stock by any means, but it has that strong market leader position, very diversified customer base of all the world's largest car makers. It actually, throughout the uh, United Auto Workers strike, was more protected than, say, American suppliers because its customer base was so diversified, which is great when you're dealing with customers that are much bigger than you. you it, it, it's great having large companies like, Google or Facebook or Tesla or whoever being your customers, but they also have an awful lot of power. Um, so the fact that Adiant didn't have to rely too much on like the big Americans like Ford and GM throughout this strike meant it, it didn't suffer as much as say comparable businesses. Um, so yeah, sitting at a decent valuation, I could see it appeal to a certain type of investor for sure, especially uh, so global car sales were saying that global car sales are pretty much matched up to its revenue uh, word for word. So they're set to increase by roughly 30% by 2030. So Adyen kind of has no choice but to grow with it, if that makes sense. Um, 
Yeah, it's got a pretty serious buyback program at the minute. Bought back 100 million shares in its most recent quarter at around a $3 billion valuation. So bought up about 3% of the company. If you think if you own 100 shares, you know, you kind of now have 103. In, if that makes sense, that's how you should think of value uh, of buy, buybacks and how they work. Uh, so it's pretty serious dent in that. Um, bit of debt in the balance sheet, but about one billion in cash too, and it's paying down quite a bit of the debt there as well. So I don't think there's much outlying risks when it comes to leverage. So all in all, yeah, a decent, uh, a decent, decent company there, decent value play. Um, nothing exciting won't set the world alight, but uh, yeah, not a bad one there from Stephen. I had a look at its 10-year revenue growth rate and its 10-year revenue compounded annual growth rate is minus 3.8%. Uh, so uh, everyone's favorite thing, describing a graph, it's going down a little bit year on year, just a tiny bit. Um, but I, I, it's funny, but as you said, between Gentex and now Adiant and Autoleave, another Swedish giant, uh, wonderful business that does safety restraints, safety belts. Like we have the makings of a car here, Mike. I think we have all the company names we need to go off and basically start a car company. We know who's going to do the seats, the safety belts, uh, the next tech for, for the windscreens, which is also Autoleave. Um, Gentex, they even have like kind of windows that go black and white if you just flick a switch i think we can do something with this mike there's a lot there coming for the end that's how it works once you know the suppliers it's all it's all in place just stick it all together okay mike um that is that have we to say something get go in and talk to vodafone yeah we'll give them a quick thank you um <laughs> as we always do if you're a business owner in need of a leg up uh, when it comes to your digital transformation, get yourself over to the Vodafone V-Hub to book your appointment today. You can find the link in the show notes for more details. So uh, thanks for listening, Emmett. Thanks for joining. Uh, we'll make sure to have a bigger party now, next week for the big 200. Um, if you, like Stephen, have any elevated pitches you'd want us to tackle, make sure to get in touch on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet. Simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. Leave us a review, tell your friends about us, and we will talk to you next week.